Welcome to your own podcast on RN First Bite. Michael McKenzie here. Have you ever gone to a restaurant and dined alone? Not everyone's comfortable doing it, and when I have, I must say I felt like a shag on a rock. But later this half hour, we meet a food writer who's had a quite extraordinary experience when she ordered a solo paella in Barcelona. But first today, to bath milk. Although this version, Cleopatra might give a miss, because it's actually not from an ass. I think we've got a real problem. This is the new moonshine. You've got so many people desperate to get hold of raw milk and because the regulators say, no, you can't have it, it goes underground. That's Matthew Evans, the former food critic turned food producer who's documented his journey towards self-sufficiency in the SBS series Gourmet Farmer. Unlike city folk, Matthew doesn't have to worry about getting his hands on raw milk. He's got plenty of the white stuff with four dairy cows keeping him busy. And if you're wondering, raw milk is milk that hasn't been pasteurised or heat treated to kill bacteria. And it's illegal to sell unpasteurised cow's milk in Australia for human consumption. Margot Foster dropped in on Matthew while he was making feta cheese at his farm near Signet in Tasmania to learn how he uses raw milk and to hear more about the thriving black market. This is a, the cottage that we live on on Puggle Farm. It's about 22 acres, mostly bush or swampy bits and a little bit of lovely farming land where we first set up. And Matthew Evans, you are famous for being self-sufficient in a way that a lot of people can only dream of. I know it's a bit rude, Matthew, but can I look in your fridge? Yeah, of course. You have your milk there? Yeah, so we have bottled milk and usually bottle up about three bottles a day out of our 20 or 30 litres of milk that we get. And we just write the day on there. So this says Wednesday and that's because I don't need the date because we never keep milk for more than three days. This is the remains of, of yoghurt. We just make it a natural yoghurt and we actually heat the milk to 92 degrees for, to make yoghurt because it helps it get a lovely set. So that's actually a pasteurised product and almost by accident <laughs> because, right. because it makes it taste better. What a nice way to live. I reckon we probably spend about a, uh, an hour a day at the moment because we have so much milk making dairy products or cleaning up from <laughs> making wow. dairy products. It used to be that you could buy raw milk at farmers markets. Is that still possible? Uh, no, not in Australia. You can do it in lots of parts of the world, lots of states in, in the US. You can, you can actually buy five litres of raw milk from the farm gate uh, off a dairy farm in New Zealand, which is not that different, in, I guess, culturally from Australia. But you can no longer buy raw milk in Australia. Online I saw people talking about bath milk, pet milk, Cleopatra's milk, all of these different words being used, but I did gather that was in inverted commas. In some states they're very strict about whether they believe it is for human consumption, whether or not it's called pet milk or bath milk or anything like that. But there are so many people trying to get around these regulations. Personally, I don't necessarily understand why. I think there's a reason why we pasteurise a lot of milk that's been, you know, because of the, the, the distance it has to transport, the number of cows it comes from or different dairies and how it's mixed together. And I don't think necessarily everybody should have raw milk widely available in their supermarket. But I think we've got a real problem. This is the new moonshine. You've got so many people desperate to get hold of raw milk. And because the regulators say, no, you can't have it, all of this trade, all of this bartering or whatever's going on with raw milk, it goes underground. 
I think that's it's kind of this weird anomaly you've got where there are so many people desperate to get hold of it. You know, people are driving raw milk into the centre of Sydney in the back of their unrefrigerated ute. You know, that's really dangerous. So it becomes a holy grail in a way. It's sort of taken on <laughs> uh, properties that maybe it wouldn't really warrant. Yeah, look, I'm a great believer in the flavour of raw milk, but I also understand that raw milk is probably about 10 times more dangerous than pasteurised milk. I understand a little bit of the science of it. I know it's full of bacteria. Some of those bacteria are potentially harmful. The vast majority of those bacteria are probably innocuous and some of them may be beneficial. But I don't see raw milk in the way some people do, that it's going to cure their children of autism or it's going to get rid of their eczema or, or anything like that. I think it's a wonderful product for me because I know the health of my cows. I I can make cheese on the day I get the milk. You know, I understand the, a little bit of the science of how raw milk behaves and I watch for things that might cause me or my family to get sick, but I don't give it these great curative properties. And I think some of that mystique has come about because the authorities are saying it's just too evil, you can't have it. Do you know of anybody who's actually fallen ill or died from having eaten a product that is unpasteurised milk? Not, not personally, no. But there, you know, there's lots of reported cases of people getting sick. And you know, I guess what I'm doing here today, making cheese, is far more dangerous in a sense than someone just drinking raw milk. Because what I'm doing is leaving my raw milk product sitting around at room temperature for several hours. So if there are harmful bacteria in there they're more likely to breed. Now I do remember going to farmers markets and seeing bath milk but that seems to have disappeared so have there been prosecutions? Uh, There's certainly been prosecutions. Um, We had a local dairy that was closed down recently and they they believe they were doing the right thing. As far as I understand they were you know still testing their milk and making sure it was a very clean milk but they stipulated to everybody that it was not for human consumption it was very clearly marked that it was for pet milk but when they closed down I could not believe the number of people who live around here who suddenly were without milk so the number of people who had chosen to go and buy something clearly labeled as pet milk sold as pet milk never intended for human consumption but a clean product, um, were drinking it as their daily milk source. What would you like to see in terms of regulation? I think a heavily tested, more regulated farm than a, than a pasteurised dairy and, um, uh, and, and incumbent upon the people who buy it and the people who sell it is this education, this, this knowledge that, look, you, you're buying something that's more dangerous than pasteurised milk, that it has a different life, it has a different... You can expect different things from it. Then people will understand it. But at the moment... What's, what's happening is we're saying raw milk is the devil's work, pasteurised milk is completely safe, and the reality is somewhere in the middle. Raw milk is probably less dangerous than oysters. They trust us with oysters. We know people get sick from oysters. Raw milk is probably safer in terms of the number of people who get sick from food poisoning than chicken and eggs because the risk of salmonella from undercooked chicken or from a, uh, you know, a raw egg product is reasonably large. But we don't stop people making mayonnaise, buying eggs and, and buying raw chicken. We trust them to have some knowledge. So I think if we regulated, if we gave them the knowledge, you would probably run less risk than we currently do. While Matthew Evans makes all the cheese he likes from his unpasteurised milk for his family and to feed the pigs, lucky pigs, he's not allowed to sell it. Nick Haddo from Bruni Island Cheese is the only cheesemaker in Australia with a licence to make cheese from unpasteurised milk. I caught up with him at his busy little shop, A Common Ground, in Hobart. 
I was recently down on Bruni Island and naturally I stopped by the cheese shop. Thank you. And I nearly fell over when one of the options was a product made from unpasteurised milk because oh, yeah. my understanding was nobody could sell cheese made from unpasteurised milk. What was it that made you want to make such a cheese? For me as a cheesemaker, making unpasteurised milk cheeses represents the true extent of my craft in a way and the cheeses that I make are very flavour driven I'm interested in making cheeses with great integrity and great flavour to me the only way to do that is by using unpasteurised milk milk which reflects the exact time and location of where that milk came from I had a taste of it and I have to say the flavours to me were nutty and a little bit caramelly would I be right there? Abs- no, absolutely, and that comes from the fact that it's a cooked curd. But from the point of view of it being a, a raw milk cheese, the things that I'm looking for, you know, when we talk about sort of layers of flavour and complexity, that's what we get from raw milk cheese, but also incredible length. You taste it for a long time after you've eaten it. So you're talking about milk made in this way being full of flavour. Mm. The rest of your range is not made from unpasteurised milk. It's full of flavour, though, Nick. Mm. I mean, you have to say that... Oh, absolutely. There's the rub, you know, is that uh, saying that raw milk cheeses are somehow superior is is wrong. But what pasteurised milk cheeses don't have is that integrity that raw milk cheeses have. My interest in raw milk is about making great cheese safely, and I believe that strongly that that can be done using unpasteurised milk. And I think I've, you know, not just I've proven that, hundreds and hundreds of cheesemakers around the world prove that every day. But you're managing to make cheese from unpasteurised milk legally. You're able to source milk. Tell me how you've been able to sell this particular cheese. The name of the cheese is Raw Milk C2. C2 is shorthand for cooked curd, and it's because it's a cooked curd style of cheese, that is that the curd in the vat is warmed to extract a bit of moisture out of it. Um, That's what allows us to be able to make it out of unpasteurised milk cheese because the current regulations state that the end product after six months of maturation needs to be less than 36% moisture content. The only way to achieve that is by cooking the curd. Very, very different temperature range from pasteurising. So pasteurising is a heat treatment of the milk whereas this cheese is a, a warming of the curd, okay? So you're preserving all of the integrity in the milk. Yeah, you know, the irony is, Margot, that there's a bunch of imported raw milk cheeses. Parmesan, Comte, Beaufort, Gruyere. So what kind of conditions did you have to meet? We test every batch separately uh, for pathogens, uh, which is not required for the rest of our cheeses. You know, keeping them segregated. You know, if we're making raw milk C2, we only make raw milk C2 rather than anything else on the day. You know, all all very reasonable, but all for the purpose of achieving a safe product. How restrictive are the regulations as they currently sit? Oh, look, certainly at the the moment they're pretty restrictive. And uh, what we're hoping for under the current review of those regulations by Fazans is for that range of cheeses to be expanded into cheeses that are less prescriptive in terms of their uh, age of maturation and their moisture content. Just give me some examples of those types of cheeses. Oh, look, it'd be great to be able to make, uh, you know, soft blue cheeses, breeze, things like that, soft cheeses. You know, we're allowed to import Roquefort into Australia. That's a soft blue cheese. It'd be great to be able to make it here, wouldn't it? It'd be fantastic. Nick, thanks very much. I look forward to the next one coming out. Cheers, Margaret. Nice to talk to you.
Nick Haddo referred there to Fazant's, otherwise known as Food Standards Australia and New Zealand. It's the final umpire on who can make which foods and how, and it seems that change is in the air. Fazant's CEO, Steve McCutcheon. Fazant's has been reviewing dairy products over the past few years, and the current review is looking at the possibility of expanding the range of raw milk cheeses that might be available for sale in Australia, providing they meet very stringent public health and safety requirements. But these are products from unpasteurised milk, not the sale of raw milk itself. Will it continue to be illegal to sell raw milk? That is correct. Fazant has conducted a scientific assessment of raw milk itself and uh, on the basis of the science that it's considered does not believe that it would be appropriate to sell raw milk freely on the market to consumers because of the high risk of uh, public health and safety concerns. So for now, raw milk is not available to be sold for human consumption. What about the easy availability of raw milk and raw milk products like cream online? Uh, A quick Google search and you can actually have it delivered to your door within a week, but it's labelled not for human consumption. Does that make a a bit of a mockery of the laws? The raw milk uh, you're talking about is the products that are sold as cosmetic milk or bath milk and they're sold either through outlets or uh, from the farm or uh, through the internet. Now, The sale of those cosmetic products is not illegal. However, they should be clearly labelled to alert consumers that they are not for human consumption. That said, it's certainly been brought to our attention and to the state and territory governments who enforce the regulations that this milk can leak into the food system. It's really their job to make sure that um, the current restrictions on raw milk sale are enforced appropriately. And where are you up to with the current review? We're in the middle of the, uh, the current review, um, which is looking at expanding the range of products that might be available, raw milk products. We've had one round of public consultation that concluded uh, in January this year, proposing to go out with another round of public consultation probably mid-year with a view to making a final decision by the end of 2014. Margot Foster with that report. And for more information on the Fazan's review, you can head to the RN First Bite homepage at abc.net.au slash rn and look for us on the right-hand side. And while you're on our homepage, if you'd like to be one of ten people to come with us on a wooden boat down the Yarra River, then you've got until next Saturday to get your entry in. We're offering you one of five double passes aboard the MV Melburnian. It's part of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. And you'll join us as we record the program with chefs, anglers and musicians on the theme of water. To be in the running, we need some prose from you. No more than 100 words, and those words had to include water, food and life. For more details on the competition, look for the photo of the boat on our website and you have until next Saturday. Now, dining alone. Have you ever braved a crowded room of couples and foursomes to savour a meal all on your lonesome? In a moment, we meet two women who not only dine alone, they do it by choice because they enjoy it. But have you ever wondered what the restaurant staff are thinking? And a warning, there's some mild and slightly contemptuous coarse language. It's going to be a quiet Thursday night, just Rosanna and me on the floor. We're sitting in the gleamingly romantic but currently deserted restaurant eating bowls of shitty leftover pasta for dinner because Chef couldn't be bothered making us a proper staff meal. 
You better hurry up and finish that. You have a one at 6.30, says Rosanna. One tops. Waste of a table. They eat light, barely drink and rarely, if ever, order dessert. And they're so needy. Or worse, they shroud themselves in their anonymity and melt into the shadows the entire night. Uh, We'll put him in the back, shall we? Her. Uh, Sorry? We'll put her in the back, Rosanna says, her voice muffled through sticky spaghetti. Sounded young on the phone. At almost exactly 6.30pm, a soft tinkle of the entrance bell announces the arrival of my one. She could be dressed for a date, but for the cloak of aloneness that she keeps firmly round her shoulders. Uh, Something to drink to start off with, perhaps? Campari? A glass of sparkling? I ask. I'll have a glass of champagne, please. Ah, a glass of the Blanc de Blanc, perhaps? The Victorian? No, she says, glancing up to meet my eyes. Champagne. The French. Ah, she wears her cloak well. She sips at her champagne gratefully, keeping her hands busy with the glass and the menu. I'm at her side before she even has a chance to glance around the room. Are you ready to order? I think I'll have the sweetbreads with the beurre blanc to start with, she says eventually, drawing out the French vowels just a little too far. Then the hanger steak with bone marrow. And how would you like that cooked? Rare, please. I cross out the M on my pad. Uh, Some dessert for you, ma'am? No, thank you. I'm quite happy. What did I tell you? She signs her bill and totters out on her heels. Her ankles wobble slightly as she walks, but she straightens herself and glides out the door into the evening, leaving her cloak behind. That's a table for one, written by Julie Jenkins and read by Brendan O'Neill. It's from a collection called Dining Alone, stories from the table for one, edited by culinary historian and food writing lecturer Barbara Santich. Well, some of the stories were quite poignant because they were the breakup of a relationship and there it was happening in private but also in public. So there were sometimes some bittersweet ones, but there were also relationship breakups that were celebrated. You know, thank God I've got rid of him, that sort of attitude. Now I can be me, now I can enjoy myself. So the breakup gave rise to two sorts of types of stories, the joyful and the poignant. In the story that I'm thinking of where the two people are literally dining together but alone, there's a great sadness to it and then there's a second half of that story with a much older couple. Yes, and by that stage they've become used to one another. There's still the lack of communication over the table she still gets annoyed by his particular habits, but they've grown together. The man watched his wife and smiled. Dining had been like this for a long time. There had been moments during their partnership when each one thought they would be better off apart. But as the downfalls of old age began to get more and more difficult, they soon realised that while at times they longed for a life of independence, They needed each other, and they had love. So they made an unspoken compromise, an unwritten promise, to keep dining together. I love in a lot of the stories where it allowed people to reflect intensely on what was in their mouths. Yes, I enjoy dining alone. for Not so much for that reason, but for the reason of of observing the people around me. And 
quite often entering into conversations with them because, well, in France in particular, tables are very small, they're, they're very close together. You can hear all your neighbours' conversation, even if you're not participating in it, but sometimes you can. Sometimes you're invited to participate. So do you dine alone quite regularly, Barbara? But when I'm travelling, yes. And if have I'm you... travelling by myself, I'll, I'll, I love going out and, and uh, eating by myself. And what are some of the things that have happened to you when you have done that? Oh, I've met all sorts of interesting people. In Antibes, I met a man who was repairing the organ in the, in the church, and he then showed me the workings of the organ, which I'd never seen before. And, and have you actually formed any relationships that have gone past the moment? No, no. Maybe that's one of the joys of it as well. <laughs> I think so, yes. You can be a different person for you know, a very short time. Uh, one of the other issues raised, I think, in this collection of stories is you've got to, I think, think carefully about where you're going to dine because some places are more solo-friendly than others. Yes, and it's hard to tell. There isn't a guidebook that tells you which places are more accepting of single diners than, than other diners. But I do know that sometimes when I've rung up and tried to make a booking for one person, I get the answer, no, sorry, we're full. And I tend to suspect that they're not always full, but they would prefer a table for two or more. Why do you think that is? More money. <laughs> all alone. All alone. When I was in Barcelona, I met a local food writer there and he advised me uh, of a great restaurant to go to for the best paella. This is Rachel LeBain, food writer and editor of the blog, The Food Sage. It was a good chef and he, he really raved about this paella, told me exactly which one to get and everything. So I made a bit of a journey to get there. You know, I had to get on the metro, work out my route, get to the destination, sat down, ordered the paella... And they said, oh, you know, it, it's only available as a two-person dish. And I said, oh, well, you know, I'm here on my own and I just want this paella for one person and is there anything that you can do? And the manager who was serving me, as it turned out, you know, said, oh, I'll, I'll talk to the chef, but you really can't make paella for one person. You can't make it in a smaller proportion because just doesn't come out the same, the flavour's wrong, and it just doesn't work. And I said, well, look, you know, talk to the chef, see what he can do. At the end of the day, I'll just order the two-person paella because I've got to have it, I've been recommended to have it, and that's what I've come here for, and I'm happy to pay for two people. And so he wandered off and he came back and looked very, very serious and said, the chef will only make it for two people, but he's only going to charge you for one person. So what do you love about dining alone? It just gives you that headspace and that clarity, that clarity of thought that would be interrupted otherwise. So, um, you know, I'm a writer. Um, I, I write professionally for work. Um, I write creatively outside of work. And, you know, sometimes um, just great little thought bubbles pop up that, you uh, you know, that's the beginning of, a, of an article or the beginning of a blog post. And that wouldn't have happened. So it gives you that kind of creative space. It is a great opportunity to people watch as well. But don't you find that people are watching you? Yes, they do. And I tell you what, it's usually not the restaurant staff that make you feel uncomfortable. They're usually quite good and, and quite used to people dine, dining on their own. So they have their little strategies to, to look after you and kind of take you under their wing. But it can be the other diners that tend to stare or you, you catch the same diner 
looking at you all the time. But, you know, I tend to think that, or I like to think that they're looking in awe, that they're looking in, I don't know, appreciation of, of what you're doing, that they, they're thinking, oh, you know, good on you, or I wish I had, yeah, I wish I had the nerve to do that. Tell me about what it is about restaurant design and the way we cater now for people that means that people who are alone don't have to feel like they've been singled out. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And for, for solo diners, um, the, the way the restaurant is set up is can be so important. Um, you know, I've had occasion where I've been sent to Melbourne for work and have eaten at some of the great restaurants there that have that kind of bar territory. And it's great. It's, it's, it's just, it's really casual. And, you know, you just have a little chat to whoever's sitting next to you because you're all kind of cozied up together and they could be dining alone. And if they're not, you know, it's quite likely they'll just involve you in their conversation. And then there's the, you know, the other great example of the shared table, um, tables that are set up where, you know, there could be 10 or 15 people seated at that table. And again, if you're lucky enough, you might be sitting next to another solo diner and you, you know, have a little bit of a chat or the people, the couple or the group sitting opposite you involve you in their conversations. So I think it really does help and it does take the pressure off. Now, your blog entry really sparked a response. Yeah, there were the people who had travelled all over the world and eaten around the world and um, and said that they see it as an opportunity or a lost opportunity if they don't dine alone, especially when they're travelling and they're on a bit of a journey, whether that's a journey for work or a journey for pleasure. And um, people also, you know, they talked about the props. They talked about having something to do and um, taking something with them to take the pressure off. There were quite a few responses of people who said, I, you know, I just haven't got the nerve to do. I haven't got the bottle to do it. And so my advice to them is plan it in advance. Take something with you. Once you've done it once, you'll always be doing it. Food journalist and blogger Rachel LeBain with a rallying call to dine alone. And if you've done it, how were you treated by staff and other tables? Anything out of the ordinary occur during the meal? Share your stories online at RN First Bite and on our Facebook page as well if you'd like. We do read everything. Next time, the huge rise in food-based travel. Forget the scenery, just give me the plate. And remember, you have until next Saturday to get your entries in for our trip down the Yarra. Program producer is Maria Tickle. Technical production from Mark Veer. I'm Michael McKenzie. We'll catch you soon. Everything I play is free. It's more a state of mind. So you may play unstructured music, or you may play structured music. The point is to play it freely, period. Mike Nock, truly a luminary in his field. I've done it all, basically, but so what? It's how well you do. It's not what you, it's how you. I'd like to do things better. Mike Nock, The Australian Years. You can stream this into the music from the RN homepage.